0: A very warm welcome to the Brexit Briefing with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts, where in the next 15 minutes we'll try to make sense of a dramatic and tumultuous week in the Brexit process. Now, just over a week ago, a week Friday back, the Cabinet met at Chequers, the Prime Minister's country residence, to discuss and try and hammer out an agreement as to where we go from here with the Brexit process and produce a white paper They were there all day. They had no mobile phones on them. They had to hand those in when they went in. And they came out at the end of the day and the cabinet appeared to be in agreement. But then, late last Sunday night at about quarter to 12, Brexit Secretary David Davis dramatically resigned from the cabinet. And by Monday afternoon, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson had gone as well. But where do we go from here? I'm gonna split this podcast up into three parts. First question is, What's in the Chequers Agreement? The second, will Theresa May get it through Parliament and what does it mean for her? And the third question will be, how will the EU react and where do we go from there? The White Paper is split into four chapters. Economic Partnership, Security, Cooperation and Institutional Arrangements. Most of the debate surrounds the first section, the future economic relationship, and that's what we're going to focus on. And we split that into five subsections. The section on services confirms that the UK is seeking a looser relationship with the EU for roughly 80% of the UK economy. Financial and other services will no longer be able to take advantage of passporting which gives them automatic access to other EU markets. That will affect about 5,500 UK financial firms. The government has abandoned plans for a new relationship based on the concept of mutual recognition of financial regulations, which had already been comprehensively rejected by the EU. But it is still seeking something more ambitious than the equivalence regime that the EU has with most other third countries. Part of the problem with that is that it can be withdrawn by either side with just 30 days notice. So. The UK argues that the importance of the City of London to the EU's entire financial system means a more ambitious solution needs to be found. And that particular aspect is not controversial. It doesn't seem to have been something that caused much division within the Cabinet, so we can park that one to one side. Free movement. Now, the White Paper emphasises repeatedly that free movement of people will come to an end. Full details of a new immigration policy are due to be published in a separate white paper. Now that has already been delayed several times, but there are hints in this document of what could be to come. It sets out proposals for a mobility framework, which is pretty standard in such trade agreements. And that could, among other things, allow citizens to travel freely without a visa for tourism and temporary business activity. But that said, we haven't needed visas to travel to many European countries since the 1950s and 60s in any case. And there are many countries in the wider world where no visa is required. And I think what will upset a lot of Brexiteers is that why should, for example, it be more difficult for an Australian or New Zealand nurse to get a work permit to work in the NHS than it is for, say, one from France or Germany. Surely that should be a level playing field. Thirdly, EU agencies. The White Paper confirms that the UK will seek active participation in, but not full membership of, the European Aviation Safety Agency, the European Chemicals Agency and the European Medicines Agency. The government is keen to address business demands that they only need to go through one approval mechanism to access both markets in highly regulated parts of the economy. The EU has previously ruled out full UK membership of these agencies and noted that they would have to accept the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice if it were to sign up to their rules and regulations. And I'm going to come back to this issue of the European Court of Justice at the moment, because that appears to be the biggest sticking point and the main issue that led to the resignations of both David Davis and Boris Johnson. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But back to the issue of the EU agencies. The White Paper accepts that the UK would not have any voting rights in the way the agencies go about their business but it would have to make appropriate financial contributions to them. Next up is goods, and here comes one of the most important paragraphs in the entire White Paper, and I quote, The UK proposes the establishment of a free trade area for goods, including agri-food. The UK and the EU would maintain a common rulebook, with the UK making an upfront choice to commit by treaty to ongoing harmonisation with the EU rules on goods, covering only those necessary to provide for frictionless trade at the border, end of quote. And that is one of the most controversial aspects of it, because if the UK Parliament chose not to sign up to any of those rules, the idea of frictionless trade would begin to fall apart. And another big sensitivity, back to that issue again, of the role of the European Court of Justice And the white paper says that the role of the ECJ in the UK will come to an end, but sets out detailed proposals for joint institutional arrangements to police future economic ties. Again, that said, the ECJ is the ultimate legal authority on EU rules which the UK proposes to harmonise. So it does seem, as Brexiteers have been pointing out in the last few days, that despite the theory behind it, in reality the ECJ would continue to be the ultimate authority where there were disputes on issues relating to trade. And that is not acceptable because in reality, not in theory, but in reality the ECJ would still have jurisdiction in the UK under those circumstances, and that is clearly not acceptable, and one of the big hurdles Theresa May is going to face when putting this to Parliament. And finally, customs. The key paragraph of the document reads, and I quote, The UK's proposal is to agree a new FCA, Facilitated Customs Arrangement, with the EU. As if, in a combined customs territory with the EU, the UK would apply the EU's tariffs and trade policy for goods intended for the UK, the UK would also apply its own trade tariffs and trade policy for goods intended for consumption in the UK. End of quote. So, in other words, it would still seek to strike its own trade deals around the world, even though it would be bound by EU rules and regulations. And on this issue... The Brexiteers and the EU appear to be in agreement. Neither thinks the proposal has much chance of working at all because of its sheer complexity. So that aspect is likely to be dead in the water as soon as it reaches the EU. Just one day after the Chequers meeting, so that'll have been um, last Saturday, week last Saturday, a briefing note was being circulated by Tory Brexiteer MPs that utterly demolished the Cabinet's plan, and it was produced by Martin Howe, QC, a leading barrister and expert in EU law, who's delivered numerous presentations on on the subject in the past. And here are the key points he brought. Point one, the Chequers' proposals would involve the permanent continuation in the UK of all EU laws which relate to goods, their composition, their packaging how they are tested, etc., in order to enable goods to cross the UK-EU border without controls. All goods on the UK manufactured in the UK for the UK domestic market or imported from non-EU countries would be permanently subjected to these controls. Point 2. There would be a general obligation to alter these laws in future whenever the EU alters its own laws, with a mechanism for Parliament to block such changes, which is probably theoretical rather than practical. Point three. This would put the EU in a position to fashion its rules relating to goods so as to further the interests of continental producers against UK competitors, when we will have no right to vote on those rules. Point four. The obligation to follow the EU rulebook for goods would gravely impair our ability to conduct an independent trade policy. In particular, it will prevent us from including mutual recognition agreements for goods in trade treaties and this is likely to destroy the prospect of successfully achieving meaningful agreements with some of the prime candidates such as the USA and Australia. In other words, Donald Trump was right in the interview he gave to The Sun, which he later backtracked on. And finally, these proposals therefore lead directly to a worst-of-all-worlds black hole Brexit, where the UK is stuck permanently as a vassal state in the EU's legal and regulatory tar pit, still has to obey EU laws and ECJ rulings across vast areas, cannot develop an effective international trade policy, or adapt our economy to take advantage of the freedom of Brexit and has lost its vote and treaty vetoes rights as an EU member state. And that is an utterly devastating takedown of the Chequers Agreement and the subsequent White Paper. What will the Brexiteers do about it next? Here's how arch-Brexiteer Jacob Rees-Mogg reacted to the Chequers deal. I don't think Brexit, uh, sorry, I don't think um, Checkers meets what the Prime Minister promised the British people. And I'm trying to keep the Conservative Party on the straight and narrow uh, of its commitments to the electorate. The Prime Minister herself calls it an evolution of her position. I, I think it's more of a U-turn than an evolution, and I preferred the first um, version rather than the second version, which is what I stood for election on, and is what I promised to the constituents of North East Somerset. So I'm being consistent with what I said a year ago. So. Where does all this leave the Chequers deal, and where does it leave Theresa May? Last Monday evening, there was a meeting of the 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbench MPs, and they needed 48 signatures to require a vote of no confidence on Theresa May's leadership. And they didn't get that, they didn't even get close to that, but there have been reports in the last 24, 48 hours, as I record this on Sunday morning, that they're getting quite close to that number, And conservative whips are asking some people who have already put their letters in to withdraw their letters. And I should also make clear that Jacob Rees-Mogg has not put in a letter. He has made that clear. If there was a vote of no confidence, it is quite likely that Theresa May would win that vote of no confidence at this stage. However, when the Chequers Agreement gets to Parliament, if it requires Labour votes to get through the House of Commons, that would leave her position very precarious indeed. Now, one of the quirks of this is that... If she survives that vote of no confidence at the moment, the Conservative Party rules state that there cannot be another leadership challenge or another, to be more specific, another vote of no confidence for another 12 months. So it may well be in the interests of the hardline Brexiteers to bide their time because, by this time next week, if it becomes clear that Labour votes have been needed to get the Chequers Agreement through Parliament, it would leave Theresa May in a far more precarious position than she is in at the moment. And my guess is, and this is only an educated guess, I don't have any great inside information, that the Chequers Agreement will get through Parliament, albeit with the help of Labour MPs. So, what happens assuming the Chequers White Paper gets through Parliament? It goes to the EU. And as I've already touched on, there is absolutely no way the EU, namely their chief negotiator Michel Barnier, will accept the document as it is. So the EU will demand further concessions and it seems almost inevitable to me that this will lead to further front-bench resignations. As the Conservative MEP Daniel Hannan said on Newsnight the other day, he could just about accept the Chequers agreement, but there was absolutely no further room for manoeuvre. It seems very likely to me that moderate Brexiteers on the Conservative benches share Mr Hannon's mindset. To sign off with this thought. It has taken two years for us to even get to this stage. The British people voted to leave 52% to 48%. At 17.4 million people, and by a victory margin of more than one million people. It is perverse that under those circumstances the Conservative Party should bring in a new Prime Minister who supported Remain without even a leadership contest. On top of that, just three of her cabinet supported Leave David Davis, Andrea Leadsom, and Liam Fox. I have deliberately left Boris Johnson's name out of that. Not long before the referendum was called, Boris Johnson penned two newspaper articles for the Daily Mail, one supporting Leave, the other supporting Remain, and he only decided which one to get published and which one to have spiked just before he had to declare his hand. Boris Johnson has no track record whatsoever of meaningful Euroscepticism before the referendum was called. As well as being a Remain supporter, Theresa May lacked the personal qualities to lead Brexit negotiations. Her track record during her six years as Home Secretary was lacklustre. She earned the nickname Theresa Maybe due to her dithering and indecisiveness, and this has been a characteristic of her time as Prime Minister, on Brexit negotiations and on all other issues. She does not seem to be a conviction politician of any sort and wouldn't look especially out of place in a Blairite New Labour cabinet. It says a lot about the state of the Conservative Party and of our democracy in general that after such a decisive vote for leave, the most important set of political negotiations in a generation and quite possibly our lifetimes are in the hands of people who don't really believe in it.